the Hayes Exchange. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Hayes Exchange the podcast where we highlight diverse faces and global spaces beyond the boundaries of tourism. We are so happy to have Chadwick Eason with us. Chadwick is a Harvard grad. He spent a lot of time in Asia, back-to-back summers in Shanghai. He's worked in South Korea. He's worked in the engineering space. We are just so happy to have someone like him on the podcast today. Chadwick, we're going to put the ball in your court. In a minute or less, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Who is Chadwick Eason? Sure. Um, Well, first off, just want to say I'm so happy to be here. So for me, uh, born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area, specifically Northern Virginia. Uh, After high school, as you said, went to Harvard, where I studied mechanical engineering. There I also got a secondary degree in East Asian studies. Uh, Did a couple of different summer programs uh, where I was able to travel to China and Japan. And then after graduating, decided to move on over to South Korea and Japan to work for about four or four and a half years. I guess in terms of my career, it's mostly been in the technology and operations spaces, companies including Samsung Electronics in South Korea, and then management consulting firms uh, like Deloitte here in the U.S. where I am currently. And then I guess also uh, in the nonprofit sector. So, you know, have been worked with uh, education nonprofits like HLab in Japan, also uh, one that I co-founded with a couple other Black Americans who are in the Asia space. Well, Chadwick, I can remember from college, you know, I was a journalism major myself, but uh, engineering is hard. So what on earth made you decide to study a foreign language to pick up Asia studies? I know you had to be busy at Harvard with their curriculum. What made you say, yeah, you know what? Let me pick one of the hardest languages on earth and study that too. How did that happen? And one of the hardest subjects in that too. (laughs) Uh, yeah, so I can say I was always studying a foreign language, like Spanish in elementary, middle, and high school. It was mostly as a requirement then, but in college, I also had that requirement to study foreign language for, for one year, for my first year. And at Harvard, they have this kind of week-long period called shopping period, uh, where you can kind of try out different classes, and then you can solidify your, your schedule kind of a week or two later. I shopped Spanish. I found out very quickly, you know, given the rest of the options that were available, that I was pretty much there in my in my kind of own mind as for a requirement. So I decided to look around, ended up seeing that Japanese was offered as a kid. I loved Japanese pop culture. I always wanted to learn Japanese. And I was like, okay, I'm going to shop this Japanese class. Loved it. Was like gung ho about it. I'm going to do this. And then I thought, oh, no, well, I've had these conversations with my parents, right, Um, where I have I have a fantastic relationship with my parents, 100 percent. You know, they also like to come with a level of uh, practicality when it comes to career. And so I was thinking, okay, well, in order to convince them, you know, get them on board with my with Japanese, I need to, you know, develop this plan. Right. Need to, uh, you know. Oh, you know, I want to work at a Japanese company. I can potentially do engineering there, can potentially be kind of a liaison between American companies and Japanese companies in terms of language and do all this, yada, yada, yada. And I remember going to my dad and being like, okay, I want to take Japanese. I think I got down to like the, I can potentially work at a Japanese company. And he was like, okay. (laughs) 
and that was it. And I took Japanese. It was great. Didn't even have to go with the full plan. They were just completely supportive. He was sold after the first point. <laughs> sold after the first point. He didn't know anything about Japan, didn't know anything about Japanese, but uh, he, they just wanted to support me. Thankfully, you know, I was able to kind of tie that in with my career. So that part was true. Yeah, they're just supportive. So you now have been exposed to, take take us back all the way to like freshman year Chatwick. At this point, you're exposed to these two subjects, two very difficult subjects. How do you decide to go abroad for the first time? And where did you go? Uh, tell the, the listeners a little bit about your study abroad journey. Sure. Um, so... My first experience going abroad was actually completely accidental. (laughs) I think it was a Saturday morning, my freshman year, woke up, was looking through my college email, saw that there was a a documentary screening for a documentary about China. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was hosted by uh, uh, one of the Chinese related student organizations on campus. Ended up going to that documentary screening it was a really great documentary. I remember I liked it at the, at the time. Uh, and then the student organization came out afterward and said, oh, you know, we have this, uh, we know there's this one Chinese university that's hosting a renewable energy conference in the summer. So I thought, you know, well, I hadn't really thought about going to China before, but now that I've seen this documentary, why don't we try? Probably won't get this, get the offer for this, uh, renew- to attend this renewable energy conference anyways, but I'll try anyways. Turns out I got it and I was in, uh, in China within maybe a couple of months, like after about four, four months, I was, I was pulling up into, uh, to Shanghai. I think that I was in the headspace of, you know, being within engineering at the time, but you know, being able to kind of pair that with something else, I think, was something that I really wanted to do because I really did like engineering. I did really like the problem solving. I like the design work within mechanical engineering, but I wanted to be able to pair that with some other set of experiences to make, you know, my own personal unique brand and to be who I just wanted to become. So for the listeners that are out there that are maybe wondering when they take their summer trip abroad, which country to consider, which continent to consider, why would you say students of color should consider Asia? I would say students of color should consider Asia because it is very much one place where no matter what you do, you will be broadening your experiences and your mind because the regions within Asia are very much distinct, but a lot of them have very strong historical, cultural, economic, political ties to each other. Kind of being able to see that firsthand, I think is something that really ends up broadening your experiences. You know, staying within America, sometimes you're really only seeing that, you know, there's this one room of of a house, you see these four walls around you. But uh, when you kind of go to a place like Asia, especially a, a place like Asia where you know, you're not really seeing as many other Black people or people of color too often, you really start to expand and see, oh, no, there are other areas to this house. You're not just limited by these four walls. There are other areas to this house. There's actually a full mansion out here that you can actually explore. You can explore the dining room, the living room, the bedroom. There's so many other facets 
of life and ways of looking at things. And I think being in a place like Asia, where there aren't as many people who look like us sometimes, it really helps expand that. You know, Chatwick, I think that when you're talking about going to Asia and you're talking about convincing your parents, your parents who set you up to get into Harvard, who pay, well, maybe they pay Harvard tuition, maybe you have money, but they were invested in your education. And you knew when you went to your dad, the thing that you had to talk about was the capacity to be employed in a Japanese company. And I think a lot of students of color sometimes are fearful of going abroad because they don't see a a very sure path to like financial security or stability or the type of job that they imagine their parents would be proud of or the type of job they, they imagine that their parents envision for them. One thing that I think is interesting about you is you actually did work in an Asian company. You ended up working in actually one of the largest technology companies on earth. Love for you to talk a little bit about why Asia can be a financially secure decision for a college student, but also talk about your work experience at Samsung in South Korea. I think it can definitely be financially attainable through kind of a couple different ways. And one of the ways is kind of finding a program that actually supports your actual individual needs. I would say go to your study abroad program office, your office of career services, make friends with them. They can actually help you find different programs that actually meet your financial needs and also actually help find grants to support you financially when the program itself doesn't support those needs. And that can be for school-funded programs, but also for programs that are sponsored by individual companies. I say that last part because when I first went to Korea, I actually went through an internship. I went through a global internship with Samsung, and they ended up actually paying for a lot of that experience, uh, actually the the full experience. Um, So I didn't have to put my own money forward for that experience. And finding programs like that are definitely possible. There are a lot of global companies that are really looking for individual talent in the U.S. to kind of internationalize their companies abroad uh, and their headquarters abroad. When you look at my own personal experience at Samsung, I thought it was great. It was an eye-opening experience. I was there for four years. It was it was a great <laughs> it was a great time. Uh, I learned a lot about I think myself and also Korean culture, also Korean work culture, which is a very unique uh, subset of the Korean culture as a whole. Uh, I was in a lot of different teams. All of my teams were primarily Korean. So meetings were typically in Korean. Office life was typically in Korean as well. When people spoke to me, they they typically did did speak English. Uh, But, you know, you do have to assimilate in a way uh, to the culture and the language and and try your best to make it a seamless experience for all of you as you're really all learning from each other. Uh, Chatwick, I got to know a little bit more about four years working with South Koreans because I feel as though when you've spent that much time in a foreign country, you come back and you have reverse culture shock. Like, 
you have actually acclimated so well to an environment that you you come back to America and you're like, oh my God, people dress this way or people act this way or people don't go to lunch. I don't know. What were like your your major adjustments in Korea? But then what were your major adjustments leaving Korea when you came back here? There were a lot of adjustments. One was obviously language. There is a lot of language, that, a lot of English that exists within within Korea, but you know, the like Hangul, the Korean alphabet does not exist on, you know, Romanized characters. So you kind of have to learn that uh, in order to really kind of thrive in the environment. And so being stepping outside of my comfort zone and really trying to actively speak Korean with, with anyone in retail or anyone in my company or anyone that I interacted with in the city was definitely more of a challenge, but in a good way, I would say, because, you know, when you're interacting with anyone in the U.S., if you speak English, they speak English, you don't really have to think about it, you just talk. So I'd say that was one of the biggest hurdles to tackle. When I came back, there were a lot. I would say one of the biggest, but if I, I know in the grand scheme of things, very small, small talk. Because, you know, when I was in Korea, you know, if I'm standing in line, no one's going to just kind of strike up a conversation with me out of nowhere. Uh, But you get back here and you're standing in line and like it takes like a minute over what you think the person behind is going to be like, oh, man, this is really taking a while. Then you got you're expected to kind of, you know, switch up what you were doing and think, oh, I, I need to interact with this person. Oh, yeah, this this line is really long, huh? Like, man, I, you know, but thankfully the weather is good, right? And then you kind of had that back and forth. I was not used to that when I came back. Some people struck up conversations with me. I was just kind of in my zone. And then I would realize like 30 seconds later, like, oh, oh, you're talking. Oh, that's me. Ah, yes, I will converse with you, person I do not know. Yes, I shall hold this conversation. So it took you a minute to socialize, to learn how to like incorporate the socialization aspect into um, into your American work life, which makes a lot of sense. I can imagine. Uh, one of the things I think students should think about, and something I didn't know about, um, are affinity groups like the one that that you're a part of, uh, Nabia? Can you tell us a little bit about? how you brought that together, uh, what are the goals of the organization, and what should people know about NABIA? NABIA stands for uh, the National Association for Black Engagement with Asia. We started off in January of 2019, thereabouts, and we're essentially a collective of Black Americans who work to support Black people who engage with Asia, whether that be people who engage from professional sense or kind of a just interest sense. We like to really be a welcoming community. And you know, to really describe the organization, we do two things primarily. One, create a network of Black Americans who are engaging with Asia or anyone who identifies as Black American so that we don't have that feeling of, oh, there's another Black person in this space. It's so rare we want to eliminate that feeling as much as possible and create a real network of people who are engaging. And then also second to that, increasing and amplifying the voices of Black Americans who engage with Asia professionally. 
So tell us, are there really a lot of black Americans that are working in Asia? And what is their profile like? What are these people doing? You know, honestly, there are a ton. And every time someone joins joins the network, I am constantly surprised. You know, we want to engage with everyone who joins. And one week we'll be talking to someone who is a diplomat in, you know, say, for instance, uh, Japan, you know, acting as a foreign service officer there. The next week, we'll talk to someone who is studying the China Belt and Road Initiative. We'll talk to somebody who is a professor on Okinawan mainland Japanese relations. We'll, we'll talk to someone who's a software engineer in China. You know, there, there are just so many different people doing so many very cool things, but in the grand scheme of things, have this one uniting thing that that kind of brings us all together. Uh, and that's kind of what we like to achieve with the organization. I want to talk a little bit more about the people to people connection. I remember in a previous conversation you shared with us that in one of these assignments, you had your students take apart a Nintendo Game Boy and I believe a PlayStation. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I think that's absolutely fascinating. Oh, happy to. So I was, uh, I was participating in a student-led program that was designed to provide a more liberal art style of education to Japanese high school students, where we're not kind of teaching traditional subjects. We're uh, teaching essentially whatever we want in, in a seminar format. And I decided to uh, go ahead with electrical engineering and circuits a lot of the students told me afterwards that they were very, very hesitant about taking my class because they were a little scared of trying to jump into engineering. <laughs> but uh, I tried to make it as fun as possible. You know, I set up, uh, you know, the first day of kind of having them kind of understand the basics of electrical engineering and circuits. That second day, we uh, we ended up taking apart progressively more complicated technologies. So I think I first started off with like the McDonald's equivalent of a Tamagotchi, right? So something not not too technically savvy, moved up from there to a, a Game Boy Color. And we could look inside and see all of the circuits related to that and kind of point out what the different buttons uh, lined up to on the circuit board and you know how that aligned to the to the speaker and things like that. And then uh, from there, took it up to a PSP um, and took that apart and got to see a little bit more complicated circuits. And it was great. It was a fantastic experience. The kids really loved it. Uh, and actually, even after that, I ended up having them play with Arduino microcontrollers, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but they're essentially little mini computers where you can kind of create different circuits, make LED bulbs light up um, at, you know, different cadences and with different colors. And, you know, we even attached a little speaker and one of the uh, girls, I'll never forget this. One of the girls was actually able to code a popular Japanese graduation song on this little bitty speaker. She coded it from scratch because she had perfect pitch. It, I, when I saw that and I heard that, I was blown away. I was like, this is my entire teaching career. I'm done. I, I've won. Game over. It was inspiring. And picking up where you left off about foreign languages, how important do you think it is for high school students and college students to, you know, take on some of these foreign languages when 
they're usually really busy during the academic year already. I think it's honestly super important. I think one from the standpoint of the actual language and two from the culture that you learn from the language. So from the actual language itself, there, there are so many people who stand out simply from speaking a different language. You drop that on your resume, you kind of drop that in different conversations that you have with people, and it instantly opens doors, instantly. For that reason, it's quite important. For the cultural element, you know, when you learn a language, you're not just learning the language itself, you're learning all of the cultural elements that that come with the language and kind of the framework or the beginning of how that language actually ties into the rest of the culture. And you can learn so much more kind of about yourself and different cultures just through the language. You know, for instance, you know, I, when I went to Samsung and, uh, you know, I, I kind of got the, I kind of got the hierarchy element before I even got to Samsung because I started learning Korean before I got there. You know, there's a lot of different uh, elements of hierarchy within Korean uh, that exists. And then you get there and you kind of see it in practice. You see how different people interact with each other, maybe two people at, a di- at the same level or maybe one person with a um, with another person who's at a slightly higher level or even one person with someone who is maybe in a more executive role. Those are very, very different interactions. And you can see that kind of play out even simply just through starting to study language. I I have to know one last thing. This is my last question to you because really it's like my most pressing question. Four years, that's basically like an undergraduate degree. Like what did you eat in four years? Did you like learn how to cook Korean? Like did you have a little barbecue in your house? Like what were you doing in terms of like your food? Sure. So I think for food, I absolutely love Korean food. Love it to death. It's so amazing. You can get some things that are a bit closer to the American palate. For instance, there's what you might call a samgyetang, which is, it's it's really, at the end of the day, it's really just boiled chicken. And it's just so good. It It, it is a little different the, the way that Koreans eat it sometimes because uh, there are historically the three hottest days of the year in the summer, and you're supposed to eat this piping hot stew of chicken on the hottest day of the year. Uh, very, I know that's very counterintuitive to what we what we kind of normally know, but it's so good. Um, but then you can kind of move a step even further um, to something like yukejang, which is like a beef stew, um, or, you know, move even a step further, which is like jjigae, which is like fermented soybean stew. But then you can go as, as adventurous as you want and get something like sannakji, which is live octopus, uh, which I've tried. And I mean, I, I've actually, once I tried on purpose and then the first time actually I tried completely on accident where I was at a work dinner, a bunch of, with a bunch of colleagues and we were at this seafood boil for lack of a better term. One of the people who at the restaurant who was kind of cutting up the food and kind of doing all the, the mixing at the table, I saw her 
I looked away uh, to talk to my coworker and then she said something. I turned around and she just plopped something in my mouth and I started eating it and it was it was live octopus. <laughs> and and you know at that point you're you're new to I think this was maybe my first I this was after my internships. So I'd been done my three month internship and then I came back for full time work. And so I think this was maybe like three months into me being there full time. And uh, you you roll with the punches or in this case, you roll with the wiggling octopus that is currently in your mouth, like trying to take out part of your mouth. Did you shed a tear, Chatwick? Like, how did you do it? What did you do? What you put in your mouth? Did you just say, thank you? I don't know. I just chewed and kept chewing until I was sure that uh, I was I was going to, you know, survive that that experience. Swallowed and then, uh, yeah, kept kept it moving, kept it moving during that dinner. So, but besides eating live octopus, what else did you do for fun in your free time while you were there? Oh gosh, Korea is so much fun. I I I couldn't recommend it as a as a destination enough. I mean, there are something some things that are as simple as you know during the spring and summer when the weather's really nice going out to the park uh, that runs along the Han River that runs through Seoul. What people do is not just picnic, but people will set up tents, uh, like camping tents. And, you know, you'll just hang out in these tents and like, you know, can kick the ball around or something like that. And then once you're done, you go back in this tent to kind of be shielded from the sun. Uh, But you can also sit outside of the tent if you really want to get the sun. And what you'll do is you also order chicken and beer. Uh, Tmec is a very common thing in in Korea, where you will not only order chicken and beer, but they will deliver it to your tent in the middle of a park that runs along the entirety of the river. And I'm not talking about like oh back and forth conversations with the driver or something. You describe it to them where you are; they'll be there. No complications. Um, but there's there's things like that. There's so many just sights to see, so many concerts going on. I've snowboarded in Korea as well. I've I've gone hiking at different different mountains in uh, across Korea. Uh, I've gone surfing in Korea as well. There's just so many things to do. So I'm sure our listeners out there are like, put me on a plane right now to South Korea so that I can live that good life as well. For someone that's probably already graduated and they already may be in their career, is it a little bit too late for someone who's already, you know, in their career to make that pivot to a place like South Korea? Um, And if so, if they do have that opportunity, how do they make themselves competitive? Of course, I think it is most definitely possible. You know, it depends on your, your, your situation, of course. If you work at a large multi multinational organization see if you can you know maybe transfer to a different office uh, within that same company and if you can't do a full transfer maybe ask and see if there's a program to do kind of an exchange uh, you know for a certain period of time spend maybe three months in this particular office learn about the way that they conduct business and then kind of bring that back to your home office. A lot of multinational 
companies offer programs and solutions like that. If you're in not necessarily a multinational office or a company, I would say one great thing to do, it would be to just kind of evaluate your own skill set, look at what you have to bring to the table, because we all have different things to bring to the table and see what other companies out there need that skill set. You can kind of run the gamut in terms of what you're looking at. If you want a company that's a little more structured, maybe you could go to a a larger, larger company within that country. Or what you could do is find maybe a startup in that country, because those are the places that really need very specific talent uh, and, you know, really hard workers. And if you can really kind of convince people that you can bring that to the table, then you should be should be pretty good. That is fantastic advice. As we wrap up this episode, if you could complete this sentence for me, that would be fantastic. Going abroad beyond the boundaries of tourism is important because of blank. I would say going abroad beyond the boundaries of tourism is important because it opens up your world to experiences and ways of thinking that you would have never known before.